Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie the Third. I'm Jack Allison. And today we have a very interesting and informative episode for you today. You know, mm-hmm. people, you know, knock us if we talk about things that, uh, you know, science fiction and these movies yeah. and people are like, why is that important? Why is what? Why does that matter? Why is it important? Well, we got your ass now because we have. <laughs> Now we have a smart person here to explain why actually we're right. Yeah, we found so- someone who's smart to explain why we're correct to care about this silly shit. Yes, why not only it uh, are these uh, you know films like you know The Matrix and Minority Report and Blade Runner not only are they you know aesthetically pleasing and fulfilling to your life, they also also get at the deepest questions. Of both philosophy and you know neuroscience, um, <laughs> and the overlap between those two, and um, I'm so happy uh, to have this guest. Uh, we ha- it's because we're he's on here to talk about his brand new book, uh, Neuroscience Fiction: From 2001: A Space Odyssey to Inception: How Neuroscience Is Transforming Sci-Fi into Reality While Challenging Our Beliefs About the Mind, Machines, and What Makes Us Human. Folks, it is a long, very long name of a. Book. If you have it, you. yeah, if your book title is that long, you know it has to be It's good. smart. You, it's got to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. He is a professor at University of Leicester, Dr. Uh, Rodrigo Kian Quiroga. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm not sure if I'm that smart, but I try my best to share my passion <laughs> I I would join passion with science fiction. Yeah. I mean, I read the book and I'm like, well, you know, this this person seems pretty smart to me. Seems like a smart person. (laughs) Yeah. I I do want to preface this by saying, uh, first of all, like uh, after reading your book, like this is aimed at just regular the regular audience. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though you're a high level neuroscientist, you wrote this book for uh, popular uh, readers. It's actually both. No, because typically when when I write something is is. I mean, it tends to be for my colleagues. No, I write scientific articles and to discuss ideas and so on. And I thought this can go both ways, no, because it it is, as you say, to the general public. And to the general public, basically, I want to say, well, this is what I really love doing and why. And actually, I'm not that different, not because I'm a scientist. I'm just in an ivory tower thinking about weird stuff. I mean, I I really love these movies. And one of the reasons I love them so Mm -hmm. much, maybe it is because they bring me to my other passion, which is neuroscience. And I think there's a very deep link between both and also with, with philosophy. And to my colleagues, yeah. to, to scientists, I want to say, well, it's not just objective facts. No, I mean, we're people behind the scientific discoveries. And I, I mean, I, I really feel that like we can talk science in a different way. And that's part of my passion. I really love talking about these movies. Yeah, um, I I really find your book so fascinating. Uh, I I have a degree in philosophy. I remember my least favorite class that I took was actually a class on Descartes, and we spent a whole semester on it. My professor had written a book about Descartes. Uh, he was a great professor. He was a great guy, but I just not a big fan of Descartes. But you basically were able to sum up all of Descartes stuff in about a paragraph and a half. And that's <laughs> just, and in a completely, in a way that's completely accessible to people. So I highly recommend the book, even if you haven't read any philosophy or neuroscience, mm-hmm. because 
it it really you are you digest it uh very clearly and now very you well. maybe should have seen like the matrix yes yes or have seen you know planet of the apes to be yes, honest with absolutely. you you don't have to read descartes but you should be familiar with the ideas of the matrix probably before diving <laughs> yeah. in yeah if i summarize descartes in one and a, one and a half paragraph i clearly got it wrong because it's it was <laughs> He changed philosophy. I mean, he, he really made a major revolution in philosophy. And although I disagree with what he said, I mean, seeing it like a few hundred years later, at the time he said that, that was quite something. So I, I, I really kind of like value the contribution of Descartes. I, I, it doesn't necessarily need to be right, but I think he made, a, he made us think about problems we, we never saw before in, in, I mean, in, in this way. And, and that's why I, I, I really, I mean... I think he was wrong in the main things he proposed, but I really value his contribution to to the history of philosophy. And so let's uh, let's get into uh, you know some of these movies and the ideas that you uh, bring out um, when when talking about them. So I think the one that our listeners might be most interested in uh, first and foremost is Blade Runner. We've talked about that film numerous times, right? And everyone kind of knows, understands the philosophical question it's mm-hmm. kind of asking, which is, you know, what is, does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a consciousness? What does it mean uh, to be a person? Do the androids in that film? Uh, I, I think the film suggests certainly that the androids in that are, you know, fully human and perhaps even more so. Well, I think Blade Runner, I mean, that there are many, many questions you can pose yourself after watching the movie. But one of the questions that really struck me, and I think is beautifully exploited in the film, is what makes us human? I mean, what is really the difference between uh, Descartes, the, the Blade Runner, and one of the replicants, like Roy Batty? I mean, what, why why we favor, I mean, why we would accept that uh, you can do things to an android that you cannot do to a human? Why? What is the difference? Why you... Why you will send an Android to do some mining works and give them a life of six years long and that's it. And then they have to die and you don't do this to a human. What's the difference? And as that, that's the question of the movie. And that gives me kind of like the, the, the hook to jump into the really deep neuroscience, artificial intelligence or philosophical question, which is broadly, what, what, what is it in our, what, what makes us human? And more particularly, what is it in our brain that will eventually make me different from an android, from a replicant, or even from a machine. So what is there? I mean, why why our brain is different compared to the brain of other animals, or in the case of Blade Runner, compared to the bear, compared to the brain of, of of an android? And I think this is a fascinating question. In the book, you talk about the uh, uh, the theory of the like philosophical zombie. I think it's yeah. called, uh, uh, yeah. which is the idea, I guess, in philosophy of like if you created something that wasn't a human, but you gave it a full consciousness, but it wasn't human. Like, then is that what is the difference then <laughs> if it's just if it's not technically a human, uh, uh, which, you know, it, it is ostensibly like the same idea sort of being looked at in Blade Runner. Yeah, the, the, the key is that you don't give consciousness. But the question is, if I can replicate a human, if I can do a clone, right, or actually it doesn't need to be a clone. It can be in a machine. If somehow I can replace mm-hmm. neurons by transistors. And I create a circuitry that is super complex, but somehow replicates the connectivity and the functioning of the human brain. Will this kind of like super machine be conscious of itself? So will will these things be conscious? 
And the philosophical zombie is basically saying, that's that's a question that people have been discussing for decades now, is that, well, if you can replicate a human, if you can create a clone, will this clone be aware of himself? Will he be conscious? And some philosophers argue that, no, this cannot be the case. And that's why they talk about the zombie of the philosophers. And I will argue that, yes. I mean, because if there's no difference, I mean, why mm-hmm. would I be conscious and not, not this other thing that I created? Mm-hmm. And one complication you introduced to me that I hadn't really thought about was that there is not really necessarily a good definition of what consciousness is. And in, in your book, you kind of explore the different, you know, how you would get to defining what consciousness is. And that's where uh, something you're famous for, the uh, Jennifer uh, Aniston neuron uh, kind of comes in. Could you uh, tell people what that experiment uh, kind of showed you? Yeah, this is like what, what I do in my, my real life as, as a scientist. So I... I, so there are patients that suffer from epilepsy, that they are candidates to a surgical resection of the area that starts epileptic seizures. Now, this is a procedure that in most cases is very successful, but before resecting an area surgically in the brain, they have to make sure, I mean, that this is actually the area starting the seizures. So for this reason, these patients, in many cases, they get implanted electrodes inside the brain to try to localize where the seizures come from. And there are a lot of technical details I'm I'm skipping, but these basically give us the opportunity, scientists, to study neurons inside the human brain. And doing experiments with with these patients, I once found out that there was a neuron firing to Jennifer Aniston, no matter what. So no matter which picture I draw of Jennifer Aniston, (laughs) the neuron fired, and then people started talking about the the Jennifer Aniston neuron. (laughs) So, which is quite is that a specific neuron that 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 humans have evolved to have is the Jennifer Aniston <laughs> neuron? Do we have one specified neuron for that? Yeah, well, I found Jennifer Jennifer Aniston neuron in this patient. I have found another one far into Oprah Winfrey, and if you like science fiction, mm. I mean, this is actual real data. I found another one far into Luke Skywalker. Yeah, and mm. so I found tons. As I mean, the Jennifer Aniston neuron got very famous because that was actually the first one I found. But I mean, as I found a neuron far into any picture of Jennifer Aniston, I found another one far into different people. Now, that's a very interesting science fiction, if you want, related topic, because uh, this means that we have a representation of concepts because the neuron did not fire to just one specific picture of her. It just fired to her, to Jennifer Aniston. And now comes interesting bit. This neuron has so far not been found in any other animal. They are only in humans. And this makes me speculate, and that's what I explore in some of the chapters in, in the book. Well, what, what actually, what is it that makes us human? Would it be, could it possibly be the fact that we have these neurons that monkeys do not have, rats do not have? What are, what would be the consequences that we have neurons responding explicitly to abstractions, to concepts compared to other animals? Could this be the basis of our intelligence? And this is actually Real science, this is these are the type of questions that I explore in my scientific career, but I also like let myself go and speculate about the consequence of having or not having these neurons in, in different species. And I do I try to do this in the book a little bit. That's uh now the question I want to ask you as a scientist at the cutting edge of this, um, is there a cure for the Jennifer Aniston neuron? Can we eternal sunshine out Jennifer Aniston? Maybe is that possible? You think in the future? Yeah, I, I, I speculate about this also in the book. What will happen if you will ablate these these neurons? And I'm not the first one speculating this type of thing. That somebody called Jerry Ledbin that that play around this play with these ideas in in, in the sixties. 
So it is not possible because there's not just one of these neurons, according to Jennifer Anderson. There are many, and they are distributed, at least in one particular area of the brain. So you cannot tablet each and every single of them, but you can still wonder what will happen if you manage somehow to find each of these neurons and you just destroy each of these neurons. So what will be the consequences of doing that? And well, maybe you erase some, some memories and, uh, or some, some experiences you have with, with I mean, related to, to Jennifer Aniston. So, yeah, I mean, in principle, we, we can speculate about, about this type of things. And this is related to other of, another, another of my favorite movies, which is Total Recall. Yeah. So uh, in Total Recall, your exploration of it is kind of like what uh, makes a person? Is it just their memories? And if you can manipulate the memories, does that mm. change who you are or what you are? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a discussion that is actually not so long in philosophy compared to many other discussions in philosophy. I think the first one that posed the question very, very clearly was John Locke. The, I mean, at the time of British, the, 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 the raising of, of British empiricism. And Locke, I mean, wonder exactly about this issue. What is it that defines us as, as a person? Is it our memories or is it our body? And it's a question that is, I mean, has a few hundred years in philosophy and philosophers still do not have a clear solution. I mean, there are different ways of seeing that. Now, as a neuroscientist, I will first say that the question is still posed. I mean, it's, it's just a, a, a false paradox because the body is, I mean, the brain is part of the body. So it's not the brain or the body because the brain is part of the body. It's a material thing. But I mean, it's, that's the way philosophers pose the question. But you can still argue, is it the memories? that makes me who I am, or is it really how I look like, my body? And I think identity identity goes with memory. For example, if you have somebody with Alzheimer's that starts losing, I mean, his or her memories, I mean, you will see that the person changes. But if you have somebody that for some, I mean, reason, the physical appearance changes, I mean, you will still consider this person as, as being the same. Now, if identity goes with memory, what happens then if you touch memories? What happens if you create false memories or if you will be able to erase memories? And this is what happens to Quaid or Hauser in Total Recall. And I think it's a very interesting, I mean, discussion that goes on in the movie. And you can never tell who, who is he. I mean, who is Schwarzenegger yeah. in the movie? Is it one guy or the other? Yeah. And I think this ambiguity is, is, is beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, you mentioned, you know, the mind body duality issue, and that comes up in your chapter on uh, Robocop. And, you know, with Robocop, kind of the central thing is that you have this guy who's basically giving an entire new body and his struggles with that, as, as well as, you know, uh, manipulating his memories as well. And there was a kind of interesting se uh, uh, segment in your book where you talk about this rubber hand experiment where you uh, basically say that, uh, actually, if something like that did happen to somebody, they would actually get used to it. Uh, like their neurons would actually be able to interact with their, you know, brand new, completely um, alien body in a way that is more or less normal to them eventually. Yeah, I mean, as long as this extension of you or this, I don't know, this implant that you get responds based on your expectations. So if I have, say, a robotic arm, uh, and if my robotic arm will respond in a way as I expected, based on my brain signals, based, of, based on what I think I would like this arm to do, 
I will start feeling that the arm is part of of me, even if it is a if it is a rubber hand arm. I mean, even if it's nothing looking like a real arm, I mean, I will still feel it as as part of my body. And this is exactly what happens with the rubber hand with the rubber hand illusion. So basically, you do something to a rubber hand which is similar to what you feel based on kind of like a trick. And you start feeling that the rubber hand is is part of your body, and and it's really shocking how much you believe is part of your body. Because if you hammer these rubber hands, the the people really freak out because it, they feel like you're hammering their own hand. You have a very interesting and very in depth chapter on the Matrix, and of course, the Matrix is one of the oldest philosophical kind of problems um, that's ever been created. Uh, it's Plato's cave, basically, where you know people are living this, you know, this uh, fabricated world that you know is ultimately an illusion, and they don't have access to this larger uh, world out there that they're being, you know, this shadow play that's going on in the walls of the cave. They think that's the entire world, but it turns out to uh, not be. So what does neuroscience have to kind of say about the age-old question of Plato's cave as proposed by the Matrix? So there's a long, long discussion about this in the history of philosophy. I mean, first Plato proposed, I mean, Plato was, I think, maybe the first one doubting about reality, wondering, well, does reality really exist? I mean, that does what, what I feel, what I see outside, does it really exist or there's something beyond that? And I think it was a brilliant, brilliant question. Now, uh, this was kind of like taken to the extreme by people like George Barclay, I mean, who became like what is known as, I mean, ontological idealism, idealism, which will say, well, the only thing that exists is actually ideas in our brain. I mean, the outside world doesn't exist. I mean, it, it, it only exists in, in our heads. And I think for me, okay, then the dichotomy was like, well, what is it? Is it like, what, what, what is it like that it has existence? Is it the ideas in our brain or there's an external reality that exists? And the guy that somehow put everything together for me, well, and for many philosophers was Immanuel Kant, which basically said, well, it's not just the outside reality or your ideas, it's both. So your ideas are not detached from reality. I mean, basically your ideas is just your subjective interpretation you make of the outside world. What he called in German, the Dinge in sich, the, the thing by itself. I mean, you don't have access to the thing by itself. You only have access to your interpretation of reality. Now, this kind of like summarizes the view we have about how reality exists in, I mean, today. I mean, because you don't have access to the outside reality as it is. You have access to how you perceive the reality through your brain. And so basically the external reality does exist indeed. It's a very interesting discussion, but I think we have lots of evidence that it does exist, but you don't know it as an objective fact. You only know your subjective interpretation, which is mm. based on how your brain processes this reality. So you are, so are you telling us that the simulation is not real? You you're saying definitively you don't you're not a simulation believer. Yeah, I mean, so the again you didn't like the card, but the card put it beautifully because the card was was talking about an evil evil genius that the card one day said, well, right. how do I know that what I see outside is not just the construction of an evil genius that just want to fool me, and. The solution of the car was actually a bit disappointing from the philosophical point of view because the car said, "Well, 
Descartes was a believer and he said, well, there is a God. And I don't believe that God, God will play tricks like that with me. So, but this led Descartes to wonder about his own existence. And then he said, well, as I wonder about external reality, I wonder about myself. How do I know that I exist? And then he came up with the most famous, I mean, phrase in philosophy. I, I, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo, ergo sum. So, um, and after that, many philosophers thought about this issue. And I think the guy that really nailed it was Wittgenstein, because Ludwig Wittgenstein in the 20th century was also wondering, does external reality exist? And actually, do people, do other people exist? And yeah. if they don't, well, you can wonder, well, maybe I'm just alone in the universe and everything is a construction in my brain, or maybe there's a God trying to, to, to do this to me. And you end up in what we call solipsism. So basically, there's only me. And I think Wittgenstein gave very strong arguments demonstrating that there has to be other people. Otherwise, knowledge will be, will be impossible. And so I think we, we, we do have evidence, mainly from philosophy, that uh, external reality does exist and other people do exist. So I think more than neuroscience is philosophy telling us that uh, we are not living in a matrix, that there's actual and external world. However... Again, the way we experience the world is given by our brain. And there's nothing stopping some evil genius to kind of like manipulate the brain, manipulate our memories or our perceptions to alter reality, because it's always a subjective interpretation. I believe the line you have uh, in the book about this is, it is impossible to simulate a coherent interaction with someone who doesn't exist. I think the one that proposed this, I mean, the, at least the one I know was Dan Dennett, who's maybe the most, I mean, brilliant philosopher nowadays. I, and Dennett, in a book called Consciousness, Ex Consciousness Explaining of 1991, he made this argument very clearly that it's impossible to simulate, I mean, such complex feedback that we get from the outside world, I mean, in, in, in practical terms. So I'm kind of like rephrasing what, what, what Bennett said. And so um, getting into the thing, um, the aspect of neuroscience that scares off probably most people um, and a lot of philosophers, uh, scares off a lot of philosophers too, uh, from my experience. Uh, Minority Report, yeah, um, Predicting I People's Behavior and Free, mm -hmm. the Concept of Free will the people don't like talking about what neuroscience has to say about free will but can you please you know what does uh using Pernori report to make it a little bit easier what, what what should we think about free will uh what does neuroscience tell us about free will so when you when you started formulating your your question i was wondering i was quickly in my head wondering which chapter he missed and i was thinking well i'm pretty sure he will come up with free will <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no because i first so i mean talking about these things that people are more scared of i thought well maybe it is mind reading because sometimes when, when you see a psychologist or a neuroscientist oh are you really are you really reading my thoughts and and and, and then i said no no but i mean you're certainly referring to to free will um so free will is is quite a tricky it's quite a tricky notion because it's like consciousness i mean we have to agree what we mean by by free will but now the naive conception we have of free will actually comes comes that comes back to the card back to the card again i mean back to to the genius i mean of a few centuries ago and the card proposed what we call cartesian dualism basically that there's a mind which is an independent entity entity from the body and the mind is kind of like making decisions exercising our will i mean i want to do this i don't want to do that and then 
is transmit somehow these decisions to the body and the body is implementing this decision. So say I want to raise my hand and I have the thought, my mind thinks, oh, that would be a good idea. Now would be a good idea to raise my hand. And then it's kind of like somehow interacting with the body and making the body move the hand, all the muscles being coordinated to, to, to do the movement of the hand. Now, in in current neuroscience, I mean, scientists nowadays, or, or neuroscientists nowadays, we refute uh, this dualistic view. We don't believe the mind is something different from the brain. We see the mind as the activity of neurons, nothing else. And we don't believe there are two separate things. Now, if you believe that all our thoughts and all what we call the mind is nothing more than just activity of neurons, well, the activity of neurons is predictable because a neuron will not just fire randomly, it will fire depending on the inputs that it has from other neurons and so on. And then, well, the inputs of the neurons, I mean, responding to the first senses, I mean, respond to, I mean, inputs from the outside world. So it's a very complex network of neurons, sorry, very complex network of neurons interacting with each other based on deterministic rules. And we know this and we can model that. Now, if our thoughts if our decisions are based on the activity of neurons, and if our neurons, the firing of our neurons, are based on deterministic processes, well, where is free will? Because all what I want to do is predetermine by how many neurons will fire, which is predetermined by how many neurons fire before, and things that happen in the outside world, which are also predetermined. So based on this idea, I mean, the most controversial experiment in neuroscience was done by somebody called Benjamin Leavitt, and he showed that he could predict people's decision before they made it. And this experiment was replicated, and the result is quite scary. If you measure the activity of the brain people in, of people using functional magnetic resonance imaging, you can predict the decision somebody will make even 10 seconds before they make it. 10 seconds before they make the decision, you can tell, oh, the person will do this, or the person will do that. For a neuroscientist, it is shocking, but it is quite, I mean, we can accept that because, well, yeah, I mean, if you can measure from the neurons way in advance, I mean, yeah, it is in principle possible. It is surprising that it's up to 10 seconds. I mean, I would have expected it to be a couple of seconds, maybe. Yeah. And then, but this taps directly into the issue, well, then where, where is our freedom? And the problem there is that we tend to think in terms of, of the artificial dualism because... It makes you feel uneasy not to think of a mind that is independent and making decisions. But actually, your decisions are nothing more than the activity of neurons. So you can decide one way or the other, but it's nothing magical making this decision. It's just the way your neuron fires. So I, I basically, it comes down to the fact that maybe, maybe in the film Minority Report, Max von Sydow's character was actually right. Oh. Unfortunately, unfortunately, he, they, the pre-crime is a legitimate. <laughs> yeah, but then, but but that's something I, I I explore in the book before because I think this discussion of free will has very very deep connotations because if you think if you start wondering are we free, then you have to really think about the the legal system, no? Because I mean and. One of the key principles of the legal system is that you cannot be judged for actions you didn't commit. You cannot be judged for your thoughts. I mean, if I want to kill somebody and I didn't do it, I'm not guilty of anything. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm free to sing whatever I like. The point is if I commit the act. And I think that's, that's the very interesting point of, of the movie because the movie is just turning this argument around and saying, no, but if I know for a fact that you are going to commit a crime, 
I can send you to jail before you commit it. Why, why would I expect that you kill a person to, to convict you? I can do it before and I save this person's life. So I think it's a very interesting uh, discussion that 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 is being raised by the movie. Yeah, and so uh, to to close this out, like, what is the main you know kind of takeaway you would want people to kind of get from your book? When I started writing the book, and I think I, I tried to convey this message at the very beginning, I I felt like when I started writing it, I felt like I have. I have something amazing that I, I want to tell, and, and I think it's, it's really an amazing story. And basically, it is saying that, well, if you like science fiction, what you're seeing in science fiction films is not really that far from what we are doing in the lab, in neuroscience lab this day. And many of the things that you still believe are science fiction, they're not fiction anymore, they're actually happening now, in the last five years or so, or 10 years. So... This is one of the messages, but the other message, I mean, this will be the first one, but the other one that is also very important for me is to say, and actually these questions, they are not our questions. I mean, they're questions that people have been wondering since Mm -hmm. centuries, and that's why we have philosophy. And I really like the idea of bringing these three things or these three things together, Mm -hmm. science fiction, philosophy, and current neuroscience. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, so much uh, for joining us. Where can people yeah. uh, find your book and more of your work? Uh, well, the book, I think, is in, uh, I mean, you can get it online. It's called Neuroscience Fiction. I think it's very easy to to get. There, there are a lot of references in the book to, to my work. So I always try to intermingle, I mean, what I do, this Jennifer Aniston Unos and so on. So there are a lot of discussions about what we find in the human brain doing the experiments are, I described before and how this links to different ideas from, from science fiction movies. So there, there will be a lot about this in, in the book already. Right, thank you so much. That was Struggle Session. Have a good one. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.